You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. You're listening to episode 378, and I'm your co-host, Brittany Martin. Joel Kenville is a consulting developer with ThoughtBot. His primary languages are Ruby and Elm, a statically typed functional compiled to JavaScript language. Beyond just coding, they highly value mentoring and investing in others. This can take multiple forms, from one-on-one pairing to running a small group workshop to writing articles on the ThoughtBot blog. Topics that particularly interest Joel live on the fuzzy boundary between solving practical problems and stepping back to see broader patterns. Welcome to the Ruby on Rails podcast, Joel. Thanks for having me on. It's great to have you. Joel, what is your developer origin story? So I first got into technology almost by accident. I was running a small business as a wedding photographer and needed a website and had one of those like template builder package things I got from Costco of all places and needed to make some modifications, stumbled across an HTML tutorial that explained the very, very basics. And I opened Notepad, typed in a few lines of HTML, saw it actually show up on a page, say, hello world. And I was hooked. That's an incredible story. Now, if you were a wedding photographer in today's era, how do you think your origin story would change? Mm, I think I probably would have had to know about the web and build it as part of the business probably much earlier. I think a lot of things like social media are now such an important aspect that you need to have things that look good on Instagram. And so, yeah, probably would have dipped my toe in the technology world sooner. That makes sense. Well, ThoughtBot is very well known in our space for consulting. I'm curious, have you always done consulting work or have you been at a product company before? I was briefly at a product company that was doing some ed tech work. But I first joined ThoughtBot a long time ago as an apprentice. So when I was pretty early on in my career and yeah, I've been there for almost nine years now. That is absolutely incredible. I love to hear those stories where people join as an apprentice and just work their way up. So I am curious, as I noted, I have been a past ThoughtBot client before at my last role. I'm a huge fan of the bike shed. Spoiler alert to next week's episode. ThoughtBot changed their internal structure to ignite, liftoff, boost, and mission control. So I'm really curious, Joelle, which team did you land on? I'm on the boost team, the team that focuses on larger projects where ThoughtBot developers and designers embed alongside other teams. So generally not the projects where we will just build something from scratch for someone, but the ones where either we're coming alongside an existing team to help solve a particularly tricky problem or just add a little bit of extra manpower, or even in more of a sort of teaching and mentoring role. If there's a particular technology that a team is looking to level up on, testing is a common one that we do, things like that. What's the kind of projects that you enjoy the most? You know, is there certain clients that you enjoy working with? Is there certain projects, problems? What is a project that you get really excited about? I enjoy variety. But as mentioned in the bio earlier, I really value investing in other people, helping other people level up. And so projects where we can come alongside and either do something that's more of a formal teaching or just embed alongside a team and say, hey, it's a more junior team. They're looking to have more senior people to help level them up. And we're just going to work on a project together, paired up. Those are really meaningful engagements for me. 
We mentioned in your bio that your primary languages are Ruby and Elm. Do you often get to use Elm in these consulting projects? It depends. It kind of comes and goes. Because these are larger projects, I do maybe three or four projects in a year. And so depending on the year, sometimes I might get one or two Elm projects and sometimes I get none. That makes sense. Well, the reason I brought you onto the show is, you know, as you mentioned in the bio, you write some really amazing content for the ThoughtBot blog. And I've currently been thinking over a description for a backend developer opening on our team. And someone raised the question that they need to be able to write third-party integrations. And see, to me, as a Rails developer, I think there's no escaping that. What do you think? Most projects do end up needing to integrate something third-party. It can be as simple as saying, well, we need Stripe to handle payments, or it could be some kind of third-party API, a partner, uh, something like that. I totally agree with you. And I think the variety of how challenging that can be totally depends on the partner. So when you see a requirement of just add this third-party API, what are the common questions that just kind of run through your head? Like, what's the first thing that you want to look at? Probably if there's any kind of documentation around this API. If they're a sort of well-known company that has maybe public documentation, that's a good sign. But I've done integrations where it's some sort of private deal that's been negotiated between two companies, and all we have are Word docs that embed snippets of code or links to spreadsheets. And those have been pretty miserable to integrate. One thing that always kind of breaks my heart is I always check Ruby gems to see if there's a gem for that integration. And you get really excited. You see a gem and you're like, oh, this is great. This is all going to just work perfectly. And that gem was last updated in 2010. That is definitely sad. It is sad. And the reason that I brought you onto the show is kind of discuss a different mental model in approaching these integrations since they are so frequently requested. So let's say that you've been given a particularly gnarly new integration to add into an existing application, which makes sense because you are on the Boost team. How would you approach it? There's a few different ways that one could think about building a a third-party integration. One might be from a kind of an almost like an object-oriented design perspective where you sit down and think, okay, I'm going to need an object that does this, an object that does that, likely some kind of value object for the return value, something to handle the request. You could also go for kind of a purist test-driven development approach where you start by just writing tests for the behavior that you want and let the implementation sort of arise out of those tests. And then one that I've found that's been really interesting recently, since I've put a lot of time into the functional programming world, is bringing some of the mental models from that world to bear on the problem of building third-party APIs. That's interesting. Have you tried bringing in the dry suite of gems to do that, or are you doing this entirely by hand? I'm doing this entirely by hand. And there may be a little bit higher level concepts than what's part of the dry suite of gems. So I'm thinking about things like being aware of what are side effects and what are pure behavior, pure objects, I guess we could call them, and keeping them separated. Yeah, let's define those real quick. So to you, what is a pure function? So a pure function is one where it's all input and output. So the only things that affect what this function will do are the arguments you pass in. And the only things you need to inspect to know that the function did something is the return value. 
And these are the kinds of functions that are just really easy to test. Because when you write a unit test, you just say, I give it this input, I expect this output. As opposed to a function or a method or an object where you give it some input, but then it makes a network request or it writes to the file system or something like that. Those are a lot trickier to test and they typically require some kind of stubbing or something like that, which can be uh, a lot more painful. That makes sense. This episode of the Ruby on Rails podcast is brought to you by Scout APM. Scout APM is leading edge application performance monitoring designed to help Rails developers quickly find and fix performance issues without having to deal with the headache or overhead of enterprise platform feature bloat. With a developer-centric UI and tracing logic that ties bottlenecks to source code, you can quickly pinpoint and resolve performance issues like N plus one queries, slow database queries, memory bloat, and more. Scout's real-time alerting and weekly digest emails let you rest easy knowing that Scout's on watch and resolving performance issues before your customers ever see them. Scout has also launched its new error monitoring feature add-on for Ruby applications. Now you can connect your error reporting and application monitoring data on one platform. See for yourself why developers worldwide call Scout their best friend and try their error monitoring and APM free for 14 days, no credit card required. And as an added bonus for Ruby on Rails listeners, Scout will donate $5 to the open source project of your choice when you deploy. Learn more at scoutapm.com slash Ruby on Rails. Thanks as always to Scout for their continued support. I think Pure Functions was a big selling point for our community around Elixir, correct? Yes, yes. Elixir is a functional language. And then on the other hand, what is a side effect? So I think a side effect is a a pretty broad term. They could probably refer to anything that is not a pure function. So if you are writing to the file system or making a network request, that's a side effect. Similarly, if you're pulling information as an input that is not from your arguments, maybe you're reading an environment variable, uh, things like that, those are not pure functions either. That would be considered a side effect. So as you're approaching writing this integration code, how do you break it out within your code base? So a design that I particularly like is splitting the sort of core of the integration into two pieces, a part that I like to call the client, which is an object that manages all of the business logic around the different types of requests that one might make to an API. So maybe we want to fetch a particular kind of data or we want to fetch a different type of data. And then it might need to then coordinate to transform the responses into value objects or things like that. This object does not make any network requests itself, which makes it really easy to test because I can just say, when I call the get users method on it, it gives me back a list of these user objects and it behaves nicely. Then I have a separate object that encapsulates all of the actual network code. I typically call this the driver, and I will then inject that into the the client object. So in tests, I can inject a a double into the client that pretends to be the driver, so I don't have to make any actual network requests. And then in the unit tests for the driver itself, then you have to mock the network or do some stubbing or something like that, that all of those are isolated in one place now. That makes sense. So if I am now cloning down a repository that you have worked on, Joel, 
and I want to take a look at these client and driver objects, where would I find them within the tree? It probably depends. I'm not super consistent about that. In a simpler project, I might just put them under app models, but they could also very likely go under a lib directory, likely under a folder namespace for the particular third-party service that I'm integrating with. When you first explained what a driver was, I was like, oh, this could be a service object. But the more that you talked about it, it seems to be almost the opposite of what we have come to expect from service objects. Would you agree? Yes, yes. I think the goal of the driver is to take all of the network-related code and kind of coalesce it all in one place. So you might imagine if you're making requests to an API that is secured with OAuth and making a request might involve first getting a refresh token or using that refresh token to get a new OAuth token. So there might be two or three requests that happen under the hood, even though sort of logically in your mind, you're just saying, get the users. And so all of that is hidden in the driver object rather than being sort of scattered and repeated throughout the client object which I think is maybe the way a lot of people initially start with an integration. It seems pretty straightforward. If you had one integration within your code base, you would have one client and one driver. I'm curious, let's say you were building out a social media platform that had many different integrations. How would the structure of the client and driver differ? I would probably have a client driver pair for each integration, unless there were some very strong similarities between the protocols that are used between different integrations. So maybe we find out that the way that pretty much all OAuth applications work at the driver level is more or less the same. Maybe it makes sense to say we have an OAuth driver, we have a basic auth driver, we have something like that, and then those could be reused. And that is the beauty of using a dependency injection here is that it does allow you to swap the drivers out if you need to in a reusable fashion. You can also um, wrap them with, say, a decorator if you need some special behavior. So maybe you want to say, I have a OAuth driver, but it needs to also handle some caching for some of my clients, but not in others. So I could possibly decorate my driver with a caching layer on top of that that only makes the requests under certain circumstances. So it seems like you're pretty committed to this pattern. Have you taught other ThoughtBot developers on your team to approach it with this pattern with clients, or is this something that you tend to do with side projects? Uh, I've definitely done this on client projects. It tends to, I think, arise naturally if you are test driving just because it helps take a lot of the pain out of testing different pieces of the integration. But it, sometimes it also comes out of just conversations around the, the structure of an object. So maybe we start with just one integration object that deals with everything. If it starts getting to the point where it has to handle multiple requests, maybe we start having questions around single responsibility or maybe we're starting to make a change to something where we realize, oh, we weren't handling OAuth refresh tokens. And now that involves making a change in a bunch of different methods, and it starts feeling like the shotgun surgery code smell. And so that might start a conversation about how might we avoid this in the future, and then that might move towards the pattern I discussed. That makes sense. So if you're doing this client driver process, 
Does that mean if you are going to be implementing a third-party integration, do you avoid gems out there and integrating that into the code base in order to interact with that integration? Or do these actually pair together? If there is a gem, it's often very nice to use it. But as you mentioned, oftentimes there isn't one, or if there is, it's abandoned. And so I've found that for a lot of the work that I've done, I've needed to do something entirely custom. Well, let's move on to testing because I definitely have a lot of opinions about whose responsibility it is to test third-party integrations. So I'll be curious to hear your take. So what is your approach on testing integration code? So I like to test drive a lot of the code that I write. So I will write the tests first and then write an implementation to satisfy those tests. And that's part of what I think pushed the structure that I mentioned earlier because it makes some of those tests easier to do. I think there's a really important step in test-driven development, which is if you feel pain in your tests, that should push you to maybe reevaluate the way you're structuring things, or at least rethink your approach, uh, rather than just pushing through it. And including that step can really help drive the design of things. Trying to understand once you have reached a pain point and say, okay, what are my tests trying to say? Then there's other lenses you can use to look at the problem to try to, to understand. So one of them might be saying through the lens of some of these um, object-oriented design or solid principles. Another one might be looking at it from a functional perspective and say, is the pain that I'm feeling because I'm mixing pure functions and side effects? And is there something that I should separate out here? So I found that collecting a few different mental models. And then when I'm faced with a problem, trying to look at it from these different perspectives gives me a really rich standing point to then try to come to the best solution. This episode of the Ruby on Rails podcast is brought to you by Honey Badger. I have been a Honey Badger user for the past seven years. When I start a new job, I no longer ask, do you use Honey Badger? It is instead, where's my Honey Badger login? What's Honey Badger, you ask? Well, when application errors happen, it's nice to know that Honey Badger has your back. Honey Badger makes you a DevOps hero by combining error, uptime, and check-in monitoring into a single, easy-to-use platform. Honey Badger sends you real-time alerts with all of the context needed to see what's causing the error and where it's hiding so you can quickly find it, fix it, and get on with your day. The included uptime and cron monitoring also lets you know when your external services are having issue or your background jobs go missing or silently fail. Go to honeybadger.io and discover how Star, Josh, and Ben created a 100% bootstrap monitoring solution. Why is this important? Self-funding means that they only answer to you, the developer, rather than a venture capital overlord. Thanks to Honey Badger for supporting the show. So would you prefer to mock and stub or record your test suite's HTTP interactions? Ah, that probably depends at the layer that I'm working at. In unit tests, I would prefer to mock and stub. An integration test level, if I'm doing something that's really end-to-end, sometimes it's nice to record with something like VCR. And then sometimes I will actually build like a, a little fake service that runs in parallel and responds to requests. I think both of those are, are valid approaches. Well, that's really great that you are willing to flex because most developers that I've interacted with feel very strongly about one or the other. And I love that you are willing to really integrate all three approaches in order to get a solid test suite. 
I'm curious what your sort of go-to approach is in this kind of situation. So at my last role, we were in a very intense soap to rest transition, which shout out to my team for my last job. They just finished that transition. It took about four years, which sounds crazy, but it was the very heart and soul of that application. And it had to be done very slowly. And so it was not a very stable API to integrate. And we became very dependent on VCR cassette tapes because they would often break the API. And so we were relying on the fact that by dumping those cassettes and re-recording, we would catch errors on their side, which tends to not be the situation for most third-party integrations. They tend to be stable and you can, you have the ability to mock and stub. Now, my current role, they're very against VCR. And so we mock and stub everything. So I'd love your advice on how do you mock and stub, you know, as you're just getting into a code base and you're getting familiar with an integration? I try to rely as much as possible in unit tests on test doubles Mm. rather than stubbing other objects to return canned responses. This is because it allows me to rely on a more public interface for both of them. And it's an argument that's passed in as opposed to typically if I'm stubbing another object, it's because I've hard-coded that inside of the system under test. It's also much harder to write a tautological test or a self-referential test that's always true when you're using test doubles. So I don't entirely avoid stubbing. There are cases where you need it. But For the majority of the code that I try to write, I try to use test doubles as my sort of go-to first technique to use when trying to test a piece in isolation. That's fantastic. I'm so glad that you came onto the show to share this because I really do think third-party integrations are such a key, important aspect of a lot of developers' lives. And it's just something that we need to talk about more. And I love that you have this unique mental model around all of it. So, Joelle, as I ask all of my guests, what are your thoughts on the future of the Ruby and Ruby on Rails communities? I think there's a vibrant future ahead of us. Rails is still an amazing tool for building backend projects. There's a lot that you can do with it. It allows you to hit the ground running really fast. It's still my go-to approach for many projects. So, yeah, I'm a fan. I'm going to ask a bonus question then. What are your thoughts on the future of the Elm community? Hmm. I think it's a very niche language. I think it's still trying to find its place in the front-end ecosystem, particularly one that's dominated by flavors of JavaScript. But we're also seeing a lot of interest on the front-end for things like better types, better security around code that gets run, just more guarantees and looking for what computers can do for us to make our lives easier. And so I think there's also a lot of interest in that type of project. How can listeners follow you? So they can follow me on Twitter at Joel Ken, J-O-E-L-Q-U-E-N. And they can uh, read my work on the ThoughtPop blog. The link is too long to just say out, but I'm sure you can include it in the show notes. Absolutely. Any upcoming blog posts that we can tease to the listeners? Oh, So I've mentioned in the bio that I'm really interested about the projects that sort of sit at the fuzzy boundary of really practical problems to solve and then zooming out a little bit to see if there's bigger patterns and if there are like almost like uh, pieces of code philosophy that can apply. And I've been digging into very recently 
different patterns we can use to better structure conditional code. Trying to see, are there some like useful techniques and patterns that we can use that can help us write code that is easier to read, easier to change, particularly when structuring conditionals. And I think right now my sort of motivating example is going to be a, a multi-step form or a wizard, because those are highly branching. And in my experience, especially in Rails, tend to end up as tangled conditional messes. So playing in that area and seeing if I can pull a blog post or two out of that. Fantastic. Well, I cannot wait to read it. Thank you so much for coming on to the show and for sharing all of your thoughts. Well, thanks for having me on. You've been listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded to stay in the loop on Ruby on Rails and open source software. While you're at it, please leave us a review. And thank you for listening. <laughs>